Welcome to the Government Huddle with Brian Chittister, a new podcast from Government Marketing University. My entire career has been dedicated to marketing in the government space. And in the beginning, I never cared about the why. I was completely focused on the how. It was all about the tactics, the analytics, the ROI, rinse and repeat. Then I decided I wanted to understand these programs and technologies the same way our customers do. It opened up a whole new world for me. And that is what this show is about, aligning the why with the how, taking a deep dive on current trends, making bold, educated predictions about the market, learning from expert guests, and discovering innovative concepts on how to respond to all of this. So join us as we talk about all things government marketers need to know about today, tomorrow, and beyond. Come on, let's huddle up. Your presentation is not actually there for you to deliver all of the content that's in your presentation. And I know that you think it is, and I know that there are important points that you want to get to, but what you're actually trying to do is start a conversation. That's the point of a presentation. That's the point of any meeting, any sales meeting, right? And so what I tell them is you've got to understand that, that you don't get unhappy and upset if you don't get to deliver your whole presentation. You actually have, have achieved the goal. Know when to close the laptop. Close the laptop, end the presentation, and take part in that conversation because if you've got the conversation started, then you're working towards the root of the problems that they're actually trying to solve. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. It's starting to get cold out there, guys. It feels like yesterday that we got thrust into this pandemic reality, but we were really just coming out of winter. And here we go, right back into winter and still very much our reality. But a lot has actually happened in 2020, obviously. For starters, it'll come as a surprise to absolutely no one that citizen demand for digital government services skyrocketed once the pandemic struck. At the same time, our state and local governments have been on the front lines managing multiple crises and striving to support all their communities during a public health crisis. The good news is that government is making progress in the effort to move a government on demand model where accessible, easily navigated online solutions are the norm. But in a time of chaos with unprecedented surges in demand, agencies have found themselves like honestly private sector businesses across every industry just challenged and it shows in citizen attitudes. According to new research from the Center for Digital Government, citizen satisfaction has dropped by 13%, even as their need for government support and help rose substantially. Frustrated by slow response times, overly complex processes, excessive forms, lack of personalization, and general customer service issues, citizens are coming up hard against a classic big organization problem. Old school technologies just can't deliver on modern expectations. But there's good news. The potential to improve digital citizen services without costly investments is real and it's very doable. What's more, something of a popular mandate exists. Almost 60% of citizens approve of government experimenting with digital technologies, which is really good opportunity for us marketers. The pandemic has been a catalyst pushing government to its current inflection point and agency leaders that I talk to, they clearly see this as a vital part of their respective missions. And given the citizen demand and support, this has become a powerful moment in time to push digital transformation forward to better serve people. Whether it's the government, citizens, or even industry, we all know this to be true. Better technology is the only way for government to respond and to change securely and efficiently for the foreseeable future. 
And today's guest is going to help us expound in this area. Joining us today is Adam Clater, the Chief Architect for Red Hat's federal government business. Adam, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me on. As you know, in the U.S., we're getting close to Thanksgiving. It's uh, it's next week. And so one of the things I'm asking my guests is, especially in the year that we've had, um, just to take a look real quick at some of the things or, or one of the things that you're grateful for. I know 2020 has been a difficult year for everybody, but we all have something to be grateful for. What What's that thing that's really that's really driving you from a grateful perspective? Yeah. And I've, I, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've got a, a lot to be grateful for. And so I think first of all, um, my health, the health of my family, the health of, of, you know, the folks around me is, is paramount right now. And so to have that, uh, is just really more than anyone could ask for, um, recently engaged. So, so that's, Oh, congratulations. That's, yeah. Thank you. So that's, that's working out incredibly well. Um, you know, it's been, uh, it's been an interesting experiment because, you know, as as we start quarantining in in late early March, really, um, that's a that, uh, that's a trial run unlike any other. Right. Um, yeah, I was thinking it's trial by fire, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's <laughs> been uh, it's been amazing. So uh, I've got an amazing fiance. She's got a wonderful son. And so we've all been here through all of that. Um, and so that's been a great process for all of us. But then, you know. I'm I'm also incredibly thankful really for for the time that all this is happening. If you think back uh 20 years ago when I was really starting my career, the idea that I could work uh and really have any job 100% remote, uh especially working with the government and a lot of the agencies that we work with, you know, one of my first jobs was running like the remote access system for PTO, for USPTO where people would, you know, dial in via modem uh, mm -hmm. in order to get their email or whatever else. And, and now sort of the rich content that we have would be sort of untenable and all that. So I just think it's amazing that so much of our country has been able to work remotely. I understand there's also a huge swath of our country that hasn't been able to work remotely. And that's another thing that needs to be addressed. And I certainly um, am very appreciative and uh, grateful for people in the service industry who have not been able to do these things. But for those of us who have been able to in this time, uh, it's just absolutely amazing. And so even if it's a portion of our country that, that is able to continue working, the fact that we are, I think is amazing. And it, it is directly related to a lot of the technology and, and concepts that have come through in the last uh, 20 years around remote work. That's a good point. Were you working remote before all this happened? I was off and on remote. And so, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, Red Hat had just moved offices in Tyson's corner. So we moved from one side of Greensboro international to the other side of Greensboro international. So it was a really short move. Um, and, and in that I had started, uh, there was a transition period between the offices where we did a lot of working from home. And in that time I had built a new computer to use and set up my office. And so I was pretty ready to start working from home. I turned it up a little bit, but I miss it so much. I miss seeing my coworkers and my colleagues. I miss the just very natural face-to-face -face interaction. I really miss getting out and seeing customers. I mean, I would be on airplanes around the country visiting customers, if not around the world sometimes. And so it's very difficult to um, to really build the empathy for for that government uh, struggle, the things that they're really working at. And so it, you, you continue to try to do that, but it's, it's so much 
easier to do it face to face than it is remote. Yeah. So what have you kind of begs the question, right? What have you done to to kind of bridge that gap and and at least try to get the same interaction or valued interaction with a customer digitally uh, versus in person? Yeah, it's 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 certainly been hard. Um, you know, there's a lot of video and teleconferences like like we're doing now that everyone's doing, but I find that um, you know you can't go. I could go and have a, a one or two hour meeting with someone and and be very productive, but today to be one or two hours with someone virtually, it just doesn't work exhausting. the same. Yeah, it is exhausting, and we've got yeah. um, new interrupts that we wouldn't have had in the office, whether it be children or life or or you know everybody who's staying at home is sort of counselor teacher uh dog walker it's like all of the jobs that you might have been part-time are now full-time and mm -hmm. trying to do those in parallel and so i think one of the things we have to we have to be aware of the um of the asks that we're putting on people and we have to be intentional about the things that we're asking of them and the time that we're asking for them to contribute so you have to try to make them very productive and you know, things that were sort of norms back in March, April of like, oh, we're going to do virtual happy hours. Like who's been to a virtual happy hour in the last two months? Like they don't exist anymore, right? Yeah. They're just not happening. And so, and that's because people, it's, it's. What's more exhausting to get on, I think it's for them, the time back is more valuable. That's right. That's right. And, and so, you know, we all need our outlets and, and, and so anyways, it's just, it's just something I think we have to be aware of and, and intentional about. Yeah, my six-year-old is doing virtual uh, virtual school uh, in first grade, and I feel bad for him. And we have this conversation all the time because he's just exhausted by the end of his day. And I try to I try to tell him it's it's exhausting for me being almost forty, sitting on video calls and doing this. But I I, I just can't imagine um, being six and having to to go through hours and hours of video learning. Um, it's just not it's not what they were made for, right? And uh, it's it's so difficult. Um, yeah, so, like, I, I mean, I can't read or spell, but I have a password and a username. Exactly. <laughs> and, and multiple email accounts. That's right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, remote work's one of them. Um, are there anything that, anything else you've seen um, specific to government now uh, from a digital transformation perspective that uh, the pandemic has really catalyzed? Well, I think um, remote work nails it. I think the other thing that's important to understand is that the nature of how government is interacting with citizens has been forced to change, right? And so, you know, it's, it's, we talk about remote work and, and people say, well, we were ready to go remote work, but we've had to accelerate it because of this. But the reality is that um, we were ready for remote government, but we've had to accelerate it um, because of this pandemic. And so if you think about, you know, I've got uh, papers here on my desk from this and that and what have you. And, and that entire process is going to have to change dramatically. I, I, um, I had to wire some money to someone, uh, for, for buying a car and I, I had to go in and fill out some papers and, and then sit down behind a desk and wait for them to do all that. And it was at my local credit union and I couldn't help but think, I can't believe I have to do this. Right. I can't believe that in order to wire funds from point A to point B, I have to fill something out with a ballpoint pen in order to get it done. And so I think the federal government, state and local governments are recognizing a, that, that they have that same issue and that they need to change. And so the digital interaction between people and their government is having to change dramatically. We're going to see how that continues to evolve. I'm sure we're all seeing changes in things like the DMV 
and other places like that. I think the federal government is going to have to continue with that. And it's it's really planted in our mind. You know, it's like we've we've been thinking the last 20 years, well, what should we do to prepare in case another 9-11 happens? And 9-11 has fundamentally changed the way that the government has worked. Now we're going to be thinking with the mindset of, well, how can we prepare appropriately in case another COVID happens? Uh, and I think that'll that'll really set the direction of the next 20 years of IT. I think it's a really good point. So we, first of all, I want to touch on something you said. Government was ready to shift in remote work. And I think they were thrust into this posture in about as draconian as a situation as you can. So I actually think the way that they were able to pivot was pretty incredible in that situation. And I think they've they've had some good leadership over the past few years. They've gotten um, the foundation in place to be able to do that. So I think the pivoting was great. The other thing is you've now seen them in this in this remote work world start to reevaluate what can and cannot be digital. I mean, you're talking, you were mentioning the interactions between citizens, but I think even on the internal back office side, we were seeing organizations onboarding new employees, net new employees, not just contractors, net new mm -hmm. employees into their organization virtually. And you're talking about issuing uh, IT assets and all that type of stuff. When would you ever imagine that would have been done virtually? I, I mean, I would have thought it was impossible. I even for even for I think Red they did. Hat. I think even they for Red did. Hat, I would have thought that would be impossible, right? Yes. The number of people that we've been able to hire or hire this year uh, and bring on virtually, it's amazing to me that like I have maybe I, I, I'm guessing, but so, somewhere around a hundred coworkers now in the public sector organization who have never fa had a face to face interaction with a Red Hatter before. That's amazing to me. It's absolutely it's it's amazing, mind blowing. Well, we've, I mean, at OpenText, we hired a, a new president of U.S. public sector in the middle of all this. And she's been running, she's been running that business unit. And I've been working with her and I've never met her in, in person. We meet all the time, obviously, but I've never actually met her face to face. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a little bit mind blowing in that regard, right? Because you would think, oh, oh, well, we're just gonna have to stop. There's no way. Um, but, but, you know, the business of business, the business of government marches on and it's important and, it, and it, it just goes to show how resilient the organizations are i've always said that you know we build organizations we build teams because we have to be able to survive situations where we may lose an individual and that no individual is bigger than the team and so that, that's why we build teams right so that mm -hmm. we can and and you know people are temporary they go get another job they get married they do this they do that they they move um it builds and, resilience though that's right. And so the organization builds that resilience. And this has been a great example of that resilience. And, and so I think it's a testament to, to the business uh, as well as to the government. So you've mentioned Red Hat a couple of times. Obviously, that's that's where you work. Walk us through what you guys are doing there and your role um, as chief architect. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Red Hat is really um, we're the largest provider of open source solutions to commercial and uh, the government. And so. A lot of people aren't really aware of what Red Hat does in that context. And so I'll I'll illustrate that a little bit. Um, you know, first and foremost, uh, Red Hat works to ensure that open source technologies are really built in a way that's consumable and usable. And I like to say that meets like your mission and your time frame um, for for government agencies. So that means that we invest a lot of resources in contributing code to the upstream. Red Hat's the number two contributor to the Linux kernel. Uh, we're the number one approver of changes to the Linux kernel. 
We are one of the largest contributors to Kubernetes, uh, containerization, all kinds of storage technologies. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And so step one of Red Hat is that if we're going to position ourselves as experts in the marketplace around these technologies, it needs to be because we've contributed to them and we understand how the code works, but also how those communities work, because they are these global international communities that are uh, all working on these technologies. Lots of companies are in there, individuals are in there, uh, the US government makes contributions to these communities. And so we play a, a part in all of that, but specifically for the gov federal government, uh, Red Hat makes sure that uh, the certifications and accreditations that are needed for federal government and state and local customers as well, are there, right? So whether it be common criteria or FIPS or helping to develop the DOD STIG, Red Hat is there all along the way, making sure that it meets the mission uh, and the mind frame uh, of a government customer. So that's, that's sort of what Red Hat does. Um, for me, I work in our public sector organization, working with customers kind of across the board to help them understand how open source technologies and Red Hat specifically can help solve their problems. And so, you know, one of the big things that's been coming about in really the last few years, it's been the idea of containerization, uh, virtualization, orchestration of those things. And so for Red Hat, that takes the shape of a product that we call OpenShift. So I'm a bit of an evangelist um, from that perspective, as well as just, you know, I like to think I'll do really whatever it takes to forward the Red Hat mission. And so that's a little bit of everything sometimes. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, my role is slightly similar to that way. I, it's, it's more of a, a marketing function, but it really becomes a, whatever you need to get the message. I, evangel, I like the word evangelist. I think that's part of it. You, 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 there's a number of ways you can, you can do it. Um, you talked earlier about being on a plane, being all over the world. Um, it, it resembles kind of what my life was like before all of this happened. Um, but one of the things that's always interesting to me, especially when I'm I'm talking to somebody, because we have so many folks hyper-focused on um, the U.S. public sector for, mm -hmm. for U.S. federal, state, and local. I'm always interested when I, because they're, they're, it's fewer and far between, when you meet somebody who is also focused on global to understand some of the patterns you see across. Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot that I see uh, that kind of narrows down. And what's funny is I think in government, they often think their challenges are very linear to their organization. You realize, you know what, there's, there's countries halfway around the world that are experiencing the exact same thing you are at this very time. Um, but I want to know, in all the customers you're meeting with, what are some of those common challenges you see? Yeah, so um, my focus currently is really on the U.S. public sector, but in a few years ago, um, I was certainly handling much more of our global government business. And so that's included Japan, Australia, Canada, the UK, Israel, as well as some other customers that I've worked with. And so what I'll say, uh, and, and I, I continue to see a lot of the trends of what's going on, is that uh, a lot of those customers, they, they can be either ahead or behind of where the U.S. federal government is, right? Now, I will tell you that the U.S. federal government is an aggressive adopter of technology. And so mm -hmm. I think the U.S. federal government tends to be a little bit ahead, although in, in some places like Israel, they are very much a, a forward-leaning technology country. And so there's a lot of innovation happening there, and a lot of that innovation makes its way into the government. Um, but the U.S. government sets a lot of the gold standards uh, for government consumption of technology. So when I will go 
anywhere, they'll ask me about NIST 853, right? And that is the standard for security implementations in the United States for how the US government consumes technology. Um, and so they say, well, what do you guys do to address NIST 853? How can you help us understand that? And it's like, wow, I, I've got an answer for that, right? Like Red Hat does these things to help our customers with NIST 853. Um, and what we're starting to hear now is FedRAMP because they're very, very interested. And they say, well, if yeah. FedRAMP is good enough for US federal government customers, we think FedRAMP is good enough for us from a cloud consumption model. And listen, the, the US federal government is like the largest consumer of technology in the world um, by, by dollars. And so if, if they're setting the standard for anyone, other governments or even commercial entities, um, that's, they're the ones to follow and how you do these things. And so they're very interested in, well, what is the DOD using? Because if, my goodness, if the DOD is using it, it must be right. good enough for us to use. And it's like, well, DOD is using things like OpenStack and OpenShift, and they're using things like, you know, agile development and, and you know, um, uh, DevOps. And I was actually in a meeting in Japan talking about DevOps, DevOps, DevOps. And then finally somebody stopped the meeting and said, what in the world <laughs> is DevOps? Now, to be fair, this was several years ago. Um, and, you know, for me, at least from the Japanese perspective, it's like Kaizen meets quality, um, quality engineering, right? And, and, and the Toyota way and, and agile software development. And they were like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, that yes, that makes a lot of sense about how we should um, build software. And so, you know, some of the words may change, but I'll, I'll be very honest. There were times when, you know, I was speaking to a Japanese CIO through a translator and I didn't even have to wait for the translator to translate because there were enough of the technology words and English words. I was like, I, I know exactly the question this guy answered. I'm just going to start answering it. Um, and so, so they can be very aggr uh, aggressive and progressive in that, in that regard. I think Fedrin's a really good example. I mean, you look at the control sets within it and it overlaps. We're, we're going through our FedRAMP certification right now in a couple of our products and um, it, being global, like we have this project going, but now I'm quickly having to address protected B in Canada. And you mentioned Australia, IRAP, and then G cloud and all that type of stuff. And what I'm finding is a, a lot of the issues that really come from an internal standpoint with FedRAMP beyond costs, because obviously it's an investment. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't want to be little, I don't want to be little that. A continual investment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's the the engineering resources. It's the the gap remediation process and the, and the rinse repeat all the time. And um, what's incredible is that you, you start with FedRAMP first and then those controls, once they're remediated, they just meet those standards for the other ones. So yep. you can go you can go into uh, deployment and audit and you're ready to go and you're kind of crossing that that large bridge already, which is incredibly helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the programs I do want to highlight that you guys are doing right now, I think it's, I think it's a fantastic one, um, is your, your coffee hour session. And we have a lot of marketers um, that listen to the show. Why don't you give us a quick description of this program um, and talk to us about some of these really cool guests you guys are pulling in. Yeah. So this, you know, Red Hat Coffee Hour is at least on the public sector side is the brainchild of uh, one of the marketing team folks, Lisa Huang. Um, she is absolutely brilliant. She is the producer 100% of what happens. Uh, and so, you know, for us, Coffee Hours is designed as an opportunity for customers and really anybody to disconnect from what I call the echo chamber that we all live in. We live, especially those of us in the DC area, 
we live in this government echo chamber where we're talking to government people, we're hearing about the government on TV, we're, we're it's just it's just a mess. It can be pretty overwhelming at times. And so it's really just kind of unplug, tune in, uh, drop out <laughs> and, you know, get 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 some perspectives about people who may be in the government or maybe interested in the government or maybe just be really interesting people. Right. And so we started off our very first one was with um, sort of a, a renowned hacker named Kevin Mitnick, who was arrested for stealing the source code to Sun Microsystems. Um, and, you know, went to jail for a while and came out and started a security company and just some of the things that he did as a kid and the things he was interested in. We had George Takei, who was phenomenal, uh, just an absolute amazing guest. Um, really, really great insights just about Star Trek and about acting and about being a, an Asian American in the United States from World War II through today. Um, the, the Japanese internment camps that his family was put in. I mean, just some pretty deep stuff from that regard. Um, most recently we had Frank Abagnale, who is the guy behind catch me if you can, if you've seen that movie starring, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and just some of his exploits in life. And, you know, they didn't get it all in the movie. There's more that, that he did and he interacted with. And then to find out that he, without uh, being required by any court has paid back every dollar that he stole. Um, he has worked for the FBI since he got out of jail. For he was decades on a now program. Yeah. And has never received a single dollar, not even in TNE. Like, like they haven't even paid any of his expenses um, traveling all over the country. Um, and so he's made his money consulting with Czech companies and, and, and all other places. And so I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to get to sit down and talk to some of the most amazing people in the world. I, I spoke to Mudge, who actually was just announced he's the head of security for Twitter now. Um, but he testified before Congress in the 90s talking about sort of the, the Internet infrastructure and what we had back then. He was a he's done. He's been a consultant to presidents on security. I mean, so so for me personally, it's probably one of the most amazingly fulfilling opportunities I've ever had to sit down and just have a conversation with an incredibly interesting person. And we've, and by the way, we've also had some amazing uh, leaders in STEM. Um, you know, we've had Debbie Birbiche, who is like an amazing uh, mathematician and physicist who is doing all kinds of STEM work. Um, we've had, I would have to go back to my list. I mean, we've had mm -hmm. some, just some absolutely amazing men and women who are forging new ground. Uh, in fact, tomorrow we're going to have Jesse Awuji, who is a, Af uh, a, a, a first-generation immigrant, African-American. He went to the Naval Academy, played Division I football, and is now racing NASCAR. I mean, just like knock down any wall. This guy is fantastic. So those, those are the types of folks that we're having on, and they're just, just incredible, just absolutely incredible folks. That, no, I, the lineup sounds great, and especially uh, this this next guest. It, it, it's the kind of conversation that really can motivate somebody, right? That's I mean, right. You, no, that's exactly you see right. something, you go do it, and uh, and just yeah, that's incredible. Um, so, what from a marketing perspective, how have you? What type of returns have you guys seen on this type of program? Has it been something that you've seen beneficial, or is it something that's just focused on government, or do you open the aperture up to other industries? So, you know, I think. When you have people like um, George Takei, right? 
he's not really a government focused guy. Exactly. He's, well, how, he's how just, do you prepare for that conversation from a government uh, perspective, right? Yeah, no. Well, there, so there's a huge amount of prep and I think that's, that's the first thing people should know. So we do a, um, we do a prep call with them usually a week before we actually have the interview. Now in George's case, he's I actually met with his husband um, and and kind of talked through. Before I have that prep call, though, I send them about two pages of questions. Um, and so that's at least a week ahead of time. And these are all questions that we want to go through. Now, I never ask as many questions as I have written down. That's the first rule of this stuff, um, because the last thing I ever want to do is run out of questions. Um, but I also don't want somebody uh, to not know the questions that are coming. And, you know, this isn't a current affair, right? I'm not Maury Povich over here. We're just <laughs> trying to have an interesting conversation. So there shouldn't be any surprises. So we get them all the questions a week ahead of time, let them vet them and go through them. That takes us just getting the questions together, getting, you know, probably two hours worth of, of questions, really. Um, probably takes us an hour or more of prep. Uh, then we'll have the prep call with the the guest where we'll just talk about the nature of the show. And some of the things that are important to us is that because because of this echo chamber that everyone is in, we're we try to be very apolitical. We don't go into politics. We don't go into current Which is affairs. difficult I, right now. <laughs> it is difficult. But I tell my guests, look, I I'm trying to relieve the stress of living in the echo chamber. Right. I'm trying to talk if I can about good things that are happening in government. Um, and I'm I'm not looking to single out any particular agency. Uh, and ideally, you should be able to listen to or watch one of these shows and have no idea when it took place. You should be able to listen to it a year from now and have no idea that, that COVID's really happening. I mean, sometimes we talk about some COVID type of stuff. Um, but, you know, that, that those are important for us. Um, then we actually do a tech check with the guest the week of to make sure that we've got their video, that they've got, um, you know, I will recommend that they invest in a $30 USB wired microphone. If they're not, that's just a little lav mic. If they're not um, willing or able to do that, we'll just send it to them because I feel like the audio production needs to be quality and it's $30. I can get it to them the next day. Um, so we get them that. I request that they be hardwired for their network connection because Wi-Fi will introduce like lag and it's not the same as having a hardwired connection. So we go through all that in the tech check. Then 30 minutes before, so usually at 1.30, on Wednesday or Thursday or Tuesday, whenever we have it, uh, we'll get on with the guests, check out how they're doing, uh, try to warm up um, so that it's not a completely cold conversation. Uh, and then usually at 2.05, we go live, we talk. And you know, at that point, I'm watching the clock, I'm seeing what's going on, I'm trying to land the plane uh, and be mindful of everyone's time because I, my attrition really starts up about five minutes to the hour. And so mm -hmm. I want to make sure that we get all our content on the metric that I pay attention to most is start to finish attrition. And if I lose 10% of the audience over the course of an hour, I feel like I've really done awesome. And that's usually about where we are, um, which to me, for somebody committing an, an hour to, you know, having to listen to me talk, uh, I think that's, <laughs> that's phenomenal. And usually I try to talk very little, right? Like this is the most I talk. In. Yeah. They're, they're there for the guests. I get it. That's right. Yeah. Nobody's here to listen to me right now, Adam. They're, <laughs> they're here to listen to you, buddy. All right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, no, I, I think it's such a cool program. Um, and I, I wanted to make sure it got highlighted because I know it's something that stuck out to me. And I, I like how you framed it as kind of an escape from the echo chamber, just an escape from the uh, just the the world we're living in right now and, and the job that you're doing. I think everybody's working longer hours and um, being able to take a take a little bit of time to hear from people that 
a lot of them are household names, which is, is yeah. awesome too, that you're pulling in. So, um, I think that's, it's a great program. I think the other thing that's important to us is that we have a very wide spectrum of representation. I think it's really important that, you know, speaking to the marketers right now, um, I think it's important that your customer be able to see themselves in your marketing message. And so if you've been out and you've met and you've been with our government customers, they don't come in one shape, size, color, orientation, et cetera, right? And so it's important that the messaging that we send, if you want to be effective, if you want to have effective marketing, then your customer has to be able to see themselves in your marketing message. And that's wildly important. And so it's been important to us that we, that we be very diverse and that we have all that because I think that's the key to success, to be quite honest. And it's important to us to make sure that uh, a lot of those voices are being heard as well. I think it's a really good point. And one of the, one of the key patterns I continually hear from some of my guests, especially uh, those in the, in the C-level, um, is they're really looking for if it's a salesperson or a marketing person or whoever it is, someone like yourself come to them, they're looking for a true partner. Mm -hmm. And they want somebody that understands their business, understands their challenges. And the way I coined it is, is willing to jump in the foxhole with them and, and figure it out with them. Um, is, is that kind of what you guys align to when you're meeting with some of these CIOs and folks? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, getting back to the, to the business side, I think it's vitally important that when you're talking to a government customer, you have an understanding of the problems that they're trying to solve, but also why those problems are important, right? Like the hardest thing in the world is to say, I'm going to sell you a hard drive and this hard drive is going to affect your business like this, right? It's really, really hard to connect that hard drive to the, to the business. And so you've got to be able to make that jump and help. And not that we're in the business selling hard drives, but you've got to be able to make that jump of here's my, here's my technology. Here's my solution. Here's how I'm going to help your business, which is the business of government which depending on the agency can be a variety of things. And, if, and you need to go in with that mindset and, and really work at helping your customers understand that value. Otherwise, you're just selling a commoditized widget, right? And, and there's, no, there's no persistent value in that. And, you well, can and any company it. can sell it to them. It, That's it, right. That's exactly right. It, you, to, steal your, to steal your example, I mean, uh, how many companies sell hard drives? It's, it's the company that's willing to sell a hard drive and then be along for... The, the challenges that come along with the implementation and seeing it all the way through success and then moving on to the next challenge. That's really That's what right. they're looking for. What do you do then to understand the, the challenges of this person beyond, let, let's say you're getting ready for a conversation with a CIO. Yeah. Um, wh what are you doing to understand that business, understand those challenges? So look, you've got to go in understanding what the agency does first and foremost, mm -hmm. right? How they execute on that. Um, I do a lot of executive briefings where we'll sit down and we'll talk to the executives. And there's a couple of, of important things. One, it, as my boss says, you've got two ears and one mouth. Use them in proportion to one another. So that means listen as much as you can and let your customer tell you what their problem is. The second thing that I think is important, especially for a lot of young sales engineers and salespeople in general, to understand that your presentation is not actually there for you to deliver all of the content that's in your presentation. And I know that you think it is, and I know that there are important points that you want to get to, but what you're actually trying to do is start a conversation. That's the point of a presentation. That's the point of any meeting, any sales meeting, right? And so 
what I tell them is you've got to understand that that you don't get unhappy and upset if you don't get to deliver your whole presentation. You actually have have achieved the goal. Know when to close the laptop. Close the laptop, end the presentation, and take part in that conversation because if you've got the conversation started, then you're working towards the root of the problems that they're actually trying to solve. So that actually, for me, am I, so first of all, I love that. I think that's a great, that's a great tip. And I've actually found that it's the good salespeople that really can close the laptop and have that conversation. I I think some are afraid and they can use that as a crutch. What advice would you have to those folks in being able to overcome that uh, and be able to be part of that, that larger conversation? Yeah. I, I, I think it is hard. Um, I think, um, I think a lot of folks feel like they're in, when they're giving a presentation, they're delivering a performance, right? And so they've got certain, um, marks that they want to hit. They've got certain points. That they, yeah. Yeah. They yeah. want to deliver. And, and those things are important. There will be additional opportunities to make those points. And in fact, you can make those points more convincing, more convincingly in a conversation with some examples than you could have in a presentation, right? I think it's because more organic when it comes through that way. That's right. That's right. And it's bi-directional and that's where the real mm -hmm. flow happens. And that's, that's where the value is. And, you know, people, I think they do want to, you know, they, they say, oh, people only buy from people they like. Well, that's not, that's not completely true. Um, but I do think people want to like their people they're going to buy from, right? And so you should, you should build that. Uh, you should build that relationship and you should build, I, I mentioned empathy, that how difficult it is to build empathy with customers when we don't have the organic face-to-face -face interaction. Um, so you've got to build the empathy. You've got to understand the business. You've got to understand how it impacts that person. More importantly, the person, um, their mission, because listen, I, I don't think most government employees get up and come to work every day because they think they're going to make a billion dollars because that's not the case. I think most government employees get up and come to work every day because they really believe in the mission of the agency that they're working for. And so if you can help them achieve their goals for their agency uh, alongside that mission, then I think you have partnered with them, right? And, and, and that, that was the question, right? How do you, how do you yeah. partner with them and, and build, help them deliver on their mission and, and care about that mission? One of the, one of the things that I found that is, it can be hard to articulate, but when they get it, they really see massive value on, I, I call it kind of economies of scale. Mm -hmm. And from a process standpoint, from a technology standpoint, there's so much overlap within different departments. Um, mm -hmm. Technology components are fragmented, processes are fragmented. How do you go about telling that economies of scale story and showing them that true enterprise value um, as that single vendor, right? Because they're used to talking to X, Y, and Z vendor that solve X, Y, and Z problem. Yeah. How do you approach that conversation of, but we can do X, Y, and Z plus this yeah. and bring all this value to you? Yeah. You know, it, it's it's funny you ask that because Red Hat is in a position where um, we our largest competitor in the software market is our own software, right? Unsupported, free, open source software. Uh, and so that's a battle or a struggle for us every day is that we have to show the real value that Red Hat represents. But I think the other thing that's important to understand, and this is where the economies of scale come into play, 
is that if you've got a, a small organization within an agency that decides to go at their own and they're not going to, they're going to go unsupported, right? They're going to use some unsupported open source software. Well, the reality is they can do that. They can do that very well. Um, but there's going to be some, some other costs, right? And so uh, those costs are going to be in the form of headcount, whether that be um, you know, government employees or whether that be contract employee, you're going to have to have someone working extra time uh, where you're not offloading that workload to Red Hat. When we start talking about that at scale across the entire federal government, if every five-person team who could run an open source solution hired two more people just so that they could run their open source and not have to pay Red Hat or anybody else in the business um, for support, that scale is dramatic, right? The amount of money, the amount of tax money, the amount of expenditure that gets associated with that and it's incredibly ineffective because there's an inverse economy of scale at work, which is that Red Hat is already doing that at a global scale. So I can scale much faster, much wider, and much larger across more software communities and, and support much more software than that team ever could. And so this is very much a conversation that we have all the time is that, yes, you could, you could do this, but the reality is when the rubber meets the road, Red Hat's going to be able to do it better than anyone else because we have the folks who are contributing to the source code upstream in the things that we're supporting. That's why we agree to support them is because we have that understanding. So I think it, I think that's a perfect uh, perfect conversation to have, and we have it all the time uh, about that. No, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. It's a, it's a difficult thing to sometimes articulate because you're talking to somebody who's within that single line of business and yeah. they're looking to solve that single challenge, but um, if you can open up the aperture, I think it's it. That's when you're bringing true value. Yeah, um, and you got to talk to the executives who are looking at mm -hmm. that wider scale and understanding that. Listen, if if I've got uh, two folks supporting this this project, um, and something goes wrong, they both go on vacation at the same time. One's on vacation, one's sick, and I have no one to solve my agency's problem. What am I going to do? Because you're you're kind of stuck. Uh, and so that's a lot of what Red Hat helps provide, as well as sort of shepherding um, this software through these open source communities so that we can, you know, we support the operating system for 10 years from the day that we release it. That's the kind of life cycle and lifestyle that the government demands, right? Um, you're not going to see that uh, just using something in the upstream. I appreciate the time today, Adam, and, I, and really appreciate you kind of letting us jump into your head for for a little bit of time. Any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with today? If anything, you know, I'm, I'm loving some of the, some of the um, vaccine news, <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of that's really looking good. Um, I'm very hopeful. I'm very optimistic about what the new year will bring. Um, from that regard, I'm looking forward to, you know, maybe being 1K on United again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just, just getting back to, to that traveling and seeing my customers. And, and so... You know, I think I think that's the thing that we all know and love about about these roles. And so I think we're definitely looking forward to getting back to that. Well, speaking of optimism, I need to I need to ask one more question. So you are recently engaged. So real quick, let's hear the the engagement story. How did it happen? Oh, yeah. Um, so we had we had scheduled with a photographer to have some pictures taken um, at a local park in Annandale. And so they weren't engagement photos per se. Uh, but you know, I, I kind of decided that that would be how and, and when I did it. And, and then the other complication that we ran into was it was, 
I guess it was the week after we had switched to daylight savings time. And so we didn't count on the number of daylight hours, which is really important for taking pictures, obviously. Uh, and so we, we, things sort of, uh, there was, uh, there, there was just a lot of, um, uh, confusion, I think around all that because of the time change and everything else. So anyways, um, we're at the park and we're taking all the pictures. And so the photographer says, ah, well, this is, I think I'm going to take the last pictures. They're going to be this kind of walking towards me doing this, that, blah, blah, blah. And I said, all right, well, I just got to do this one thing real quick. And then, you know, then it happened. So it was, uh, it was really good. It was, it was a really great time and, um, really, really looking forward to where things can go. Well, that's awesome. It sounds like a lot to be grateful for and uh, a good year ahead. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us today. And this has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, and also Amazon Music. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.